Which is my power ballad choice today? I, I don't know whether it would have cut the mustard with Wallace as a as a as a power ballad, but oh, I love that. I love that big band sort of sound that she creates, like Amy Winehouse sort of did. That sort of retro sort of feel. I would have liked something a little bit faster for a Friday. Oh, I respect that it's deep and meaningful, but it's a bit too deep and meaningful oh, okay. for me. I like something a bit crass and loud on a Friday, but it's it's pleasant. Oh, then you, can, you can rock out to that in an alcohol-free bar. I mean, that's kind of what I do. Still a lot of hairspray in there, but different kind of hairspray than most of the power ballad ones. <laughs> I think I'm getting the th- thumbs down from my panellists for my power ballad. Uh, um, Wallace will be uh, turning around in his, in his lounge listening to that one. Well, belief in misinformation is commonplace in New Zealand, according to a survey done by Kantar Research for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Now, this was a survey done as part of the COVID-19 information environment when New Zealand was at the height of battling the COVID-19 pandemic and we couldn't get the rat test. Now we've got too many. So comments from among the 2,000-odd people who were surveyed included false beliefs such as, quote, the vaccine is made of rat poison, Jacinda was arrested a few months ago. What you see today is a body double. Another said a new world order is starting. 5G, Bill Gates, Hillary Clinton and a cabal of global leaders are working in concert to generate this crisis. Um, so th- this survey it presented a combination of tr- false and true statements. Um, among the true statements, in 1969, Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon and climate change is real. Now, so they put 28 of these things out and 81% of respondents, so four out of five, held at least one belief related to misinformation. And just over half of the respondents who strongly believe in misinformation have avoided or stopped watching or reading or listening to mainstream media. Well, toha toha, which is the Māori word for sharing or spreading around, they're an organisation which aims to enhance digital inclusion and encourage robust public engagement and understanding of digital technology. So we thought we'd talk to them. Chief Executive is Mandy Henk. Good afternoon to you, Mandy. Welcome to the panel. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. This surprised me on the downside. I mean, four out of five people having at least one belief related to misinformation? I have to admit that it surprised me too. And I actually went and I tried to find the list of 28 beliefs that they used to make that statistic. And I haven't been able to dig it up yet. Um, So I actually would encourage people to have maybe a little bit of skepticism about uh, that particular number. The report also conflates dis and misinformation. Disinformation is information that is spread with the intent to harm and with the intent to cause social 
social division, misinformation can be naively spread, and it can be as simple as people being wrong. Um, and the fact is, is sometimes people have wrong beliefs, and that's not necessarily as problematic as buying into a disinformation campaign. No. A couple of points about that before we move on. A, it was done by Cantor for the DPMC. So, uh, you know, it is a pretty high level um, recipient of that report. And Cantor is a pretty, uh, a pretty credible research institute from from what I can work out. They do actually use your definition of mis versus dis. So they're saying misinformation, false information not intended to hurt others and disinformation, false information intended to hurt others. So I suppose, yeah, if you somehow believe that the shadow wasn't quite right on the American flag flying on the moon in 1969, you might not necessarily be trying to hurt others. You might just... Well, that's um, exactly right. And mm. having sort of looked at the definitions that they're using of mis- and disinformation um, and having read through the report, I think that there are some places where it's not as clear as perhaps it could be. But I mm. do agree. It is overall a fairly robust report. Yes, Mandy. So, the- Mandy, so the, the government has funded this and they've released it. And I think... So what? You know, this has been around. What what are they going to do with it? What would you like the government to do with the results of this and what do you think it might achieve? Well, I think that there are a fairly robust set of interventions that we have around mis- and disinformation. This report provides yet more evidence that those need to be implemented. The ones that we tend to think are sort of have the strongest evidence base behind them are things like using inoculation theory and pre-bunking, which is where you tell people when there are spreading disinformation campaigns that they might encounter. You warn them ahead of time using trusted voices within communities. Um, ideally, that's best delivered with sort of the sandwich method. So, you know, you tell people something that is, that is true, uh, and then you explain the false information going around, and then you sort of conclude that by saying what uh, the actual facts are. Um, using social norm theory, so helping people to understand that, in fact, things like spreading hate online, spreading disinformation, are not actually ways that people normally behave and that it's outside of expected behavior. And finally, there's something called lateral reading. And lateral reading is was developed by the Stanford History Education Group. It really follows the technique that media fact checkers use. And the way that you do lateral reading is you ask yourself, who is behind the information? So rather than engaging with a piece of media or a piece of content, you open up a new tab and you figure out who is spreading this, who is sharing it. And then you ask, what is the evidence behind it? So is the source reliable? Is, does the evidence that they're citing actually support the claims that are being made? And then finally, what do others say? So what do other people think of this information? You work to contextualize and triangulate it uh, within a larger, larger context of the information ecosystem. Mandy, earlier in the program, um, we spoke about this group called Stop Co-Governance that have been having meetings in halls. And mm-hmm. they, I've looked at their website and, and the man who runs it, and they, you know, they have all these statements like co-governance promotes apartheid and racism, and co-governance is based on treaty fraud. So how do you think that should be addressed through what you've just spoken about? Who who should step up and what 
what can that government or organizations do? I think that there should be robust support and strong civil society response to this in order to make clear that the way in which these claims are being shared is very problematic. They are based on things that are falsehoods and not true. Um, and make it clear to the platforms that are responsible, so the social media platforms that host a lot of this material, that in fact this is outside of the way that New Zealanders and New Zealand society wants our information ecosystem to look like. Um, and make it really clear when we see people who are in our communities who are going down that path that in fact they are falling for things that are simply not true and that are designed to create division within our society. It really seems that, you know, this misinformation and disinformation thing um, has been becoming more and more of a problem. And all of those methods that you talk to seem so rational and clever and all the rest of it. But you're dealing with people who are choosing to believe things in some cases that are absolute nonsense. Like, do you think there are ways, you know, there's been too much respect and too much kind of, well, let's find some balance on this issue. Like, if you're thinking that, you know, Bill Gates is putting a microchip in you and yeah, things are made of rat poison, and Cindy's, Cindy's been, you know, taken by a body double or whatever, like, it's like, actually, you, you, is there a point where you say, look, you're just, this is absolute nonsense, sort yourself out. Yeah, can I just, um, can yeah, I just tell, yeah, can, can I just, can I just give a really quick anecdote and then I like your re- response to this because I think it plays in, into what Simon's saying. I, I had a friend, you know, a well-educated person um, who, who actually turned out to believe that the moon landing wasn't real. And he'd read this story about it, and he also um, had this issue with the 9-11, that it was a planned thing. And they, these are, you know, they've deeply surprised me because a, a, a really good person and, and quite well-educated and stuff. And um, but, but it was exactly to that, your source thing. So he'd been given this um, information on Facebook by a friend, and he didn't, he didn't do what I would do. It was like, you know, where's it from? It's, oh, is it from the New York Times or the BBC or Al Jazeera? Where is it from? What, what's the source of this information? And you think that one of the key things we could do is, like, teach that sort of almost media literacy or that civic stuff in, in, in schools or get it really early, like what's the source of that information? Because kids even understand that. Or who told you that? Where did you get that information from? Like you wouldn't just chuck a product in your mouth and your body not knowing where it was from and not caring. You'd deeply want to source where that was from. Do, do, do you think that makes sense, Mandy? I think that actually makes perfect sense and is really important. I think that it's important, though, to recognize that while it does need to be taught in schools as part of the curriculum, it's also something that adults need to learn. Um, a lot of the mis- and disinformation that is spreading, yeah. we're really looking at, at adults and sometimes even older adults. So it's important to work across the lifespan and with all ages to provide these sorts of interventions. And, I mean, if you think about it, someone who is, you know, 45 um, 50. What we were taught when we were growing up was, you know, you read your local newspaper. We were taught to read magazines, maybe listen to the radio. The internet, and as the internet has evolved, has changed that information environment really quite radically. And we haven't done the social investment necessary to help people take a critical eye to that change uh, and to the internet so that they can understand the new environment that they're operating in. Mm. So, just of fi- course, people yeah. are going to need help and support. Just finally, to kick this point around, um, one 
part of this report that interested me was that strong belief in misinformation, and I'm quoting from the report here, is most common in younger New Zealanders, so under 40, but particularly in their 30s, especially those with young families. I found that quite interesting and, and a little bit surprising. Does that surprise you, Simon? It does surprise yeah. me, because I think of a lot of this like that great line, Facebook did to our parents what they thought video games were going to do to us, you know. And, like, you know, there's been a lot of people who have fallen down kind of, you know, COVID conspiracy I think of old stuff. grunters when I think of, um, yeah. you know, the, uh, the sort of um, misinformation crowd. I don't really think of that. No, group. but there so are a lot of people me. have been kind of, like, um, you know, disconnected from credible news and mm. they're getting their information out of TikTok and stuff mm. that they've heard, mm. you know, third-hand and the like. But I think that the bigger theme seems to be that people treat news and facts like they treat a sports team. It's like, oh, well, that's my team and I'll follow them. Mm-hmm. And like when you talk yeah. about like go to a credible source, all of the leaders in these things, like they are not people you would like take advice from on any of these topics if you were very rationally thinking. No, and then we had the so-called leader of the free world tell everyone that the media were the enemies of the state. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you can hardly blame people. Um, I'm certainly not advocating this, but um, for, for going down these uh, these own rabbit holes and doing their own research. And this this research showed that it's, I'm reading from the report mm. here again, saying one third of those who answered said COVID nineteen misinformation had impacted them or their community. Mm. And I, speaking to friends and people I know, it's so common. Oh, um, split families to some say, degree, didn't yeah, it? You know, um, the, the unvaxxed person who wanted it, who wasn't allowed at the birthday party. Oh, yeah. it's, it's isolated people. It makes it really awkward, doesn't yeah, it? And we've all been through like an incredibly stressful thing yeah. and people react weirdly yeah. to stress. And yeah, it's do. actually kind of like a societal just stress reaction that is um, we're going to have to repair and bring back. But I think we've spent a long time being nice to people who are doing absolute nonsense mm. and maybe it's time to tell them to sort themselves yeah, out. Yeah, nice. That's in it, yeah. Hey, thanks, Mandy. Well, I Mandy. Think that's very reasonable to tell people, you know, this is far outside <laughs> of the bounds of what um, what other people believe and, and you're being, you know, unreasonable. Telling yeah. people so that is actually really important. Pull your head in, yeah. <laughs> hey, thanks very much, Mandy. It's Mandy Hink there from Tohatoha, who's talking to us about that report that was done by Kantar Research uh, for the DPMC, for the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. It was actually done in August 2022, so it's pretty much at the yeah, well, slightly over the uh, over the height of, of of that. But it was um, done, yeah, so sort of nearly nearly a year ago, and that's been uh, just released. You can find it online. Um, just check whether or not we've told you any falsehoods there. You want want to check and verify. It's coming up to 10 to 5 on the panel. Gosh, it races by, doesn't it? Um, We're going to talk super cool swimming now. Taking an ice bath is getting kind of trendy nowadays, but these swimmers are serious about their ice swimming. At Blue Lake in central Otago, there's a central Otago town called St Bathans, which I hadn't heard of, but it looks lovely. And the lake looks very cold, and they're holding the first official ice swimming nationals to ever take place in New Zealand. And the rules, well, they say it all, really. I won't read out all of them, but um, here's the main ones that caught my eye. You can't wear a wetsuit, so you can wear a silicon cap or your goggles and your standard swimming costume, but you can't wear a wetsuit. And the water temperature has to be below 5 degrees to count towards official results. Let's talk now to Susan Schuwen, who is the Events Director at International Ice Swimming Association Aotearoa. Good afternoon to you, Susan. Welcome to the panel. Kia ora. Have you, um, did you get underway today and, and do this? 
Oh, can you? Yes, can, we did. Can, you yes. Yeah, I thought the the lines might Sorry. have frozen there. Yes, we did get under. Yeah, yeah. No, we did get underway this morning. So we had our our briefing, and we've had eleven people do a five hundred meters, and nine people do a two hundred fifty meters, and four people do a one k. And then after all that was done, I did a two k, which is <clears throat> forty minutes in um, uh, between two and three degrees. So yeah. Hang on, Gosh, you you were in the you were in the water for forty two k. I mean, actually, how just, long did that take? <laughs> Oh, so um, 40, it took me 40 sorry. minutes to do 2K, yeah. Which is impressive enough on its own, but at, at what temperature? Uh, 2.6, I think they said it was, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. How so did you feel cold. at the end of it? At the end of it, I was... Well, the last about 700 metres was pretty tough, Um my all my muscles were all seizing up, so my stroke was very, very short. Um, my hands were clawed, and um, yeah, just try, breathing a lot more than I normally do. Um, and yeah, going oh. a bit crooked, they tell me. I'm sure I was swimming straight, but yeah. Well, well done. But I have to ask, what makes you do it? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to phrase it as, what's the good bit? <laughs> tell us, Susan. It's just, just what next? Um, over COVID, we started swimming without, um, um, because we didn't have the poles, we were swimming in the sea all through winter, which I'd never done before. And then a friend of ours said, let's go swim in some cold lakes in the South Island. So we did that. And we did a K that year. So the next year it was like, can we do a mile? And so this year it was like, well, can I push it a little bit further and, and do the 2K? So... And yeah, like, and I seem to be able to cope with the cold. Yeah, you hear from people a lot who get into that kind of ice bath and Wim Hof breathing and all that. That you know, dunking yourself in an ice pool mm-hmm. for a minute in the morning gives you euphoria and clarity and all that. What happens after forty minutes in an ice pool? Do you come out feeling better than you've ever felt, or what? Do you get any of that stuff? Um, yeah, it's, it's not so good when you get out. You don't quite <laughs> get that same buzz after forty minutes in the water. <laughs> Um, and you, the medics grab you and, and take you into a tent, warm tent, and wrap you up like a burrito, and then you sit there and you shake for an hour or so, or more. <laughs> yeah. Wow. And um, what, what, what did you do afterwards? I mean, what, what do you want after, after that? A, a dram of something or a hot Milo, or what, <laughs> what do you do? I just warm drinks and sugary food and, and that sort of thing, and, um, yeah, hot water bottles all around you, and... Um, yeah, just lots of um, quite good company too. So the the medics were sitting there chatting away. Um, actually, what? my speech wasn't too bad today, but sometimes your speech afterwards is pretty pretty slurred. Sounds like you've been at the pub for hours. It was Seriously, straight on for a chat on the panel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah making yeah. you sound good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what's what goes through your mind when you when you jump in and that that sort of temperature hits you? Because I'm bad enough swimming in um, well, I can do Auckland, but if, if, I, if I ever try and swim in like Wellington or Christchurch, I'm like, oh. yeah. What, what's going through your mind when you degrees, hit the water? You get that cold shock, cold shock going in, into it, and um, you just got to be careful that you don't breathe in underwater, which was a really dumb thing to do. Mm. Um, but today I actually, and usually you get that really bad ice cream headache. Um, so you think about the, if you gutsed ice cream for five minutes solid sort of thing, that's, that's kind of what it feels like for a little while. It does ease off, 
um, <laughs> after a month or so, and you didn't get it anymore after that. I think probably your brain's dead by that stage, and you know, sometimes. So, um, one of the jokes we have is no brain, no pain, but you know. <laughs> Right, so I've just been scribbling. I've just been scribbling this down, Susan. And we've got shakes, we've got ice cream headaches, we've got uh, slurred speech, uh, possibly swallowing the water. <laughs> and you pay for the privilege of doing this too. Do you? Well, that's right. Yeah, and I actually organise it all too, so I've put other people through it as well. So, <laughs> so this yeah. this is yeah, the national. Oh, sorry, carry on. I was going to say this is the um, national open ice swimming champs isn't it uh, and yep. it's popular over and more uh, in colder countries uh, are you going to go and yep. compete internationally is there is there a goal here we uh, yep so we do have world champs and at um, January this year we went over to some ones in France we took eight New Zealand swimmers um, and it's all age groups so it's five-year age groups and out of the 42 countries that were there, we came seventh as far as our gold medal haul. So we did really, really well. So Fantastic. you're going to go overseas and get headaches and slurred speech as well? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so 2025, January, is um, Italy is the next world champ. So, yeah. Oh, well, good luck with that, and thanks for, for joining us. Um, I hope you've uh, well into the recovery phase by now. Susan Sherwin there, who is the events director and competitor. What did she do? 2K in 40 minutes, which is pretty good in itself, what, let alone she said it was 2.6 degrees in that lake, the Blue Lake in uh, Bathan, um, is it St. Bathans, is it? That the place? I yeah, yeah, Central Otago. No, do you know your geography like that? I yeah, didn't know where that was. It looked nice. I don't think I'll be jumping in, though. I could watch, watch one of you guys jump in there. Maybe looked, in summer. I mean, yeah. after that sales. Not even in summer. After Central that, Otago. Are you kidding me? Yeah, after that sales job, I'll be lining right up. But, yeah, yeah, um, what yeah. an achievement. What, How what, impressive. Yeah, what, yeah. Was the, what, was, uh, what was your highlight of those, of those, of those points? Oh, I reckon it would be great fun for the you first reckon? kind of two or three minutes. But what, a, what an achievement to yeah. do two kilometres. And it's meant to be really good for your health. According yeah. to Dr Wikipedia, um, it said that it gives you more vigour and you experience less stress and fatigue. And also, it relieves pain. I suppose that's because you'd go numb. <laughs> yeah, that, that's probably, is that more the ice bath than the sort of two k swim? But yeah, I tell you what, um, it makes me want a cup of warm soup, which is the focus of this next story. Well, that's where it started. Actually, this story it began with soup and grew from there. It's one of these stories where Cyclone Gabrielle it brought a lot of destruction, but it also brought out the best in some of us as well. Hayley Butcher of Danny Virk saw the need uh, for communities uh, calling out for resources and for kai and just um, for you know, manakitanga in this time. He got together with some friends and whānau, cooked up a batch of soup, which was sent to Omahu Marae and was so well received, they upgraded it to more substantial kai, you know, meats and, and your veggies and stuff. And word got around and things started to happen. So far, 3,000, 3,500 meals have been provided. Hayley Butcher joins us now. Good afternoon to you, Hayley. Oh, kia ora. How are you? I'm I'm really good actually, and um, what a nice and incredible thing to do. You must be um, pretty proud of yourself. Um, not sure about proud, just very humbled by what we've been able to do so far. 
it was a real it was amazing. yeah it's it, it's a it's a real sort of um community get together thing right because you had uh, Ma Kitty Kitty Marai offering up its cooking facilities you had Omahu Marai with the food cartons and yeah I think you had a meat company didn't you come to the party with sort of discounted rates and things I I it, um yeah it's um, Ma Kitty Kitty Marai has been amazing and I work for Rangitani Iwi and they've been amazing. So it just started as a one-day soup kitchen, and now it's turned into how many weeks later we're still going, and we've like got a whole load of people on board coming every week just to just to affi us, and it's amazing. And yeah, the, the Danny Rick Hunters and Danny Rick Meat Company have been amazing at supporting us as long. Uh, along with the Danuvik community, have that, been so good. I, did I um, read that you even had venison? Can you tell me the story there? Yeah, no, so um, that was when venison was in abundance in Danuvik and the hunt was on and, um, yeah, the local hunters were hunting, obviously, mm-hmm. and so they were gifting us venison. Lately, we've been lucky enough to get a grant, a little bit of a grant, so we've been able to get beef. And yeah, we're changing changing it up a bit, and it's like twenty weeks probably down the line. And yeah, we're still going. Awesome. Yeah, congratulations on your work, and it's such a yeah. special thing to do because everyone who does go through periods of hardship like this, the thing that mm. you know you come out of it with is is that feeling of community and that sense of gratitude for the people who do yeah. step up to help you and do do those things, and it's the people who okay. do decide, oh, we'll just do this, we'll make yeah, the soup happen, cool. and then and then put it into place, and you know it's yeah. something that lots of people will comment on that even in a terrible experience, it's that sense of connection that that kind of sustains them. Yeah, it's um, it's been really humbling because we hail from the East Valley, so um, uh. it's been really humbling because me and my mother started it, and we've got so many. We've probably got a core group of about ten to twelve people each week, like, but lots of other people come on board. That's and awesome, hey! Thank awesome. you very much for that, and kia ora to you, Hayley Butcher, ending the panel there.